Welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking. You know me already by now. The guest today is a friend of mine and actually a young prodigy. He's, how old are you, three? 19, I think by now, probably. He's a 19 years old, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, young guy, or 18, I'm sorry, 18 years old, young guy who hosts a very successful and super good podcast called Market Champions. He interns at Simplify with Mike Green, and he knows more about macro than many of the people I worked with, which were at least double his age. Srivatsan Prakash, pleasure to have you here, Sri. It's awesome to be speaking to you, Alf. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Sri, I would say, as I start always this question, these interviews with um, the main question that is on the minds of many people right now, which is, are we going to see a recession? How bad is it going to be? And what is the probability that you attach to a recession hitting us over the next few quarters? Absolutely. So I think that the probabilities of a recession over the next, say, 12 to 18 months remain elevated. And so you can start by looking at, for example, the orders to inventory numbers. So what we're finally starting to see right now is that supply chains have begun to normalize in many ways. So if you look at container shipping prices, those have headed lower you're broadly seeing you're, you're broadly seeing these orders to inventory numbers go down. So what that what that's telling you is that there are not as many orders coming in to buy stuff. And so the stuff that company uh, that companies make is starting to build up. And so when you see these inventory builds, what we're seeing is now a shift from shortages to a sh uh, to where inventory is actually building up. And where that's interesting is you can, you can look at, for example, the, the Fed manufacturing surveys that come out because they always have data on new orders and expected new orders, prices paid, expected prices paid, et cetera. And those are all coming down. So that's, uh, so that's the first thing, uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think about this, uh, this fundamental shift uh, that we're starting to see in the economy. The other thing is, so we're also starting to see the yield curve invert. So if you look at the two stands, for example, we, we have started to see that they are roughly at the levels they were uh, before the 2008 crisis. And so obviously I'm not calling for a repeat of the great financial crisis, the factors that caused the crisis in 2008 are very different from what we're seeing right now. But it is interesting to see that the yield curve, the yield curve has inverted to that level. And this week, so we're speaking on the 25th of July. So this week, there's, there is a good chance that the, the Fed hikes 75 basis points. That's what markets are firmly pricing in. Um, the other thing that we saw in the last week are the, the S&P Global US composite flash PMI. So that was below 50. And, well, and uh, remember that the PMI is a diffusion index. So every time the PMI goes under 50, what that tells you is that the economy or whatever indicator, uh, the PMI, it could be, you know, services PMI, you know, manufacturing PMI, et cetera. But every time it goes below 50, it signals contraction. So what is interesting is we've, we've seen that you, uh, we've seen the S&P flash PMI go under 50. We're starting to see bad earnings, you know, even though we're just one week into earnings, well, we're just really one week into um, the proper earnings season. You know, we're starting to see negative guidance revisions for every sector, excluding energy. Um, copper to gold is another important indicator to watch. And what we're seeing there is we're seeing copper to gold head much, much lower. And where this is interesting is copper to gold seems to have a very good relationship 
with 10 year yields. And that, and that broadly makes me bullish on, on, on long end bonds, um, especially with the hypothesis of a recession. We're also starting to see liquidity tight in. We're starting to see, uh, we're starting to see the housing market, uh, take a dump. You know, th- th- these are broadly factors that seem to, tell me that the probabilities of a recession over the next year, next year and a half, um, we, it, it tells me that those that the probabilities remain elevated. So you presented, I think, five or six forward-looking indicators or anyway, interesting macro indicators to look at. They're signaling, in your opinion, we might be close or anyway, implying that uh, recession probabilities are higher than many people discount. Let's actually talk about them for a second, right? So you mentioned first orders to inventory ratios. So they're basically, I guess you're looking at the many subsection of the uh, service, either regional or um, US aggregate service. Uh, can you elaborate for a second again, why this orders to inventory ratio is a leading indicator and what's telling everybody again? Right, so so the orders to inventory ratio, it's it's, it's a very simple indicator, but it's very powerful. So when the economy is strong, so what we will see when the economy is strong is that a lot of companies will be able to purchase goods, people will be able to purchase goods. And so you would see that new orders number go up and you would not see a build in inventory. And what we've what we've seen over say the last 18 or so months is that we've seen to an extent supply chain blockages, etc. And so that has led to a fundamental shortage in terms of what people are able, what goods people um, are able to purchase. However, we're starting to see a shift from that because now we're seeing the orders go down. So, you know, demand is going down. And so as supply chains normalize, we might eventually enter an environment where we shift from shortages to a glut in inventory where the buildup in inventory is what makes it very interesting. So we start to see orders go down, we start to see inventory continue to rise. And you know, the combination of the two means that companies will be left with more inventory than they're able to sell. And so for and so I, I read a Substack post last week. And so what what that highlighted was the I, the ISM manufacturing new orders index versus the ISM manufacturing prices index. So those have a pretty strong relationship. And if you look at the spread between the two, at the moment, it's at the, it's at its fifth percentile, and so you know if you if you're if you're like if you believe in you know fundamental mean reversion etc. So what so you know what so what is interesting is that um, so the prices uh, so the ISM manufacturing uh, index for the prices is higher than the one for new orders. So the one for new orders is turning lower, and if you and you know if you believe that. Uh, prices pay to get catch uh, would catch up with the new orders index. You know we are likely to see that you know the prior that the ISM prices index starts to starts to move lower, and indicating that yeah. we might we might we might see you know disinflation or you know even worse deflation. So Zri, I tend to agree that new orders to inventory ratio is a decent forward-looking indicator. It tends to predict both slowdown in aggregate PMIs, but also in aggregate GDP activity with a, with a few quarters, or at least a, a change in, in the pace, let's say, of GDP growth, whether an acceleration or deceleration, but also the relationship with prices paid. Obviously, if there is a lot of demand, which is reflected in new orders, and let's not forget this service, basically ask 
CEOs and companies, what about the new orders coming in over the next six months? So it tend to ask about potential future activity against a potential uh, buildup or uh, reduction in inventories. So as prospects for new orders are declining, while inventories, we have seen them already in some of the big retailers in America, like Walmart, are piling up, it might be finally some good news as well for inflationary pressures, where at least on the good side, on the good side, at least, you get some decent disinflation. The other one that you mentioned, which is very interesting, is um, the yield curve. And then we're going to move to copper to gold, which is also interesting. But let's talk about the yield curve for a second. You mentioned that the spread between 10-year and 2-year uh, yields in the US, so that curve slope basically is as inverted as it was before the great financial crisis, almost there, effectively. So why would you uh, pay attention to yield curve inversions in general? So the thing about yield curve inversions is the the important data that it tells you is sort of, it tells you about what, um, about interest rate expectations from the bond market in many ways. And so where, there, so where this gets interesting is, so, so typically the Fed controls what is called the short end of the curve. And so that's roughly three months to one year, three months to two year um, tenor. And then the 10 year to 30 year is typically controlled by inflation, growth rates, et cetera. And so what, what this is telling you is that, so, um, so the Fed is, so the Fed is hiking, which means that the front end is going higher. And so what the market is basically implying is that, the Fed will, uh, so the, so generally speaking for a strong economy or strong healthy economy. So that is typically, um, marked by a steep yield curve or at least, or at least a normal yield curve where the front end trades lower compared to the back end. And, and there's various reasons for that. Um, you know, uh, and another thing that's important is that, so a lot of bank lending depends on what the yield curve spread is. So, if uh, so, obviously, so if the short, uh, so you know, usually banks borrow short and lend long, and so you know they borrow on uh, the three month, one year, two year rates, and then they lend out say thirty year mortgages, and so the so the rate at which they lend out is determined by the long end. The rate at which they borrow depends on the short end, and so that's and so that spread matters because that is the profit that they're trying to capture. You know, they eat the interest rate spread for lunch, and and so and so you know uh, and so. Uh, the yield, uh, so the yield curve has also, at least historically, been a very good predictor of a recession, and and usually with a with a lag of about twelve to eighteen months, um, it's been it's been a, it's been a pretty good predictor of slowdowns and recessions, and so I think it's interesting simply because once we start seeing once once we start seeing, uh, say supply chains normalize, demand come down, etc., so uh, the the inverted yield curve essentially forces the Fed to cut. Which would which would ensure that the front uh, that the front end of the curve moves lower and then the back end starts to steepen a little bit. So, um, so 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 what it tells you is one that the market is as a, it tells you about the market's expectation, uh, it's the bond market's expectations of what interest rate policy is, and two, it also it also in a way forces the Fed to undertake actions that would at least in the long run help the economy. Yeah, sorry. So I, I tend to agree with most of what you said. The uh, way I normally interpret yield curves is the long end of the yield curve is much more reactive to long-term inflationary and growth prospects, while the front end of the yield curve is more reactionary well, much to what more interest, et cetera. 
That is correct. So the fat tend to, tends to influence that much more because simply, let's say a one-year or two-year yield is effectively the reflection of where federal funds rate will be in a year or two. And that is, is very influenced by fat policy. While if you take a 10-year or a 30-year bond yield, that is influenced by inflation expectations and growth. Uh-huh. So when it happens at the front end of the yield curve reflects the Federal Reserve, which gets very, very tight, like it's getting now, right? But the back end of the yield curve refuses to align with that it's effectively telling you that the, the, the monetary policy at the front end is becoming way too tight and is going to actually hamper growth and inflation over the long term. And therefore, sometimes you have long end bond yields, which are even inverted, pricing in the fact that the Federal Reserve will have to accommodate after effectively inducing too tight conditions, will have to accommodate back then even more than proportionately. It tends to be a very good leading indicator for economic slowdowns at the very least and recession even mostly. In copper to gold, um, Three was also an interesting one because they are two commodities, but they are quite different commodities in many aspects. So can you tell us why the ratio is actually important? Absolutely. So I think one thing that, 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 that is interesting to see is that, so for example, if you take copper in USD terms, it becomes very hard. In, in that case, you tend to have um, two variables. So you have you have, well, what happens to the copper market? And then you have what's going on with USD. So if the USD, for example, gets debased, then you will, then you would likely see copper prices go higher, even though there is no real fundamental change in the demand and supply in the copper market. However, if you look at copper to gold, you know, what becomes interesting is, so for example, you would expect that China, um, or Chinese economic growth, to be influential to copper, considering that China is, if I remember correctly, the world's largest importer of copper. And, you know, they're a big manufacturing economy. So copper goes into, you know, almost every product, et cetera. Um, so what becomes interesting is, so if you take copper in USD terms, it becomes very hard to regress that against, say, the Chinese credit impulse. However, if you take copper to gold, so gold in a way neutralizes the base of copper. So, so in a way, what it really does is it isolates for what copper is doing as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, for focusing on what copper is doing and what the USD is doing, you know, the USD rises, you know, we see commodities fall, et cetera. You, you, you don't have to worry about that when you look at copper to gold. And interestingly, when you run regressions using copper to gold instead of copper USD, you see that it, beca- it becomes a lot easier to regress. It becomes a lot easier to, uh, to in a way forecast, um, well, forecast what's going to happen to the ratio using, say, the Chinese credit impulse as opposed to using copper USD. The second thing that's interesting with copper is that, so copper, as I previously mentioned, is widely used in manufacturing. It's used almost everywhere. And it's, it's one of the, it's one of the most important commodities. Um, and copper in a way is very good at telling us what, what is going to happen to economic growth. And gold, on the other hand, is, uh, and gold, and, uh, so, you know, when you look at copper versus gold, um, what we're, what we're really trying to tell here is you know, what, what is going to happen to economic growth? If copper gold goes down, you know, that is a good indicator that, you know, the demand for copper is falling down. Um, and therefore what we're bound to see is when the, when the demand for copper goes down, that, 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 that is a good indicator that the economy is also beginning to slow down. And if you run copper gold against, say, you, the 10 year treasury yield, you see that the relationship is actually pretty close. And, and in many ways, it helps, and in many ways, it can help forecast what inflation is going to, uh, for, or sorry, what, what, um, 10 year yields are going to do. And if you look at the chart of copper versus gold, you're seeing that it's absolutely fallen off a cliff. And, 
and when you and when you look at that and when you see that tenure yields haven't followed through yet what what that tells me is there's a trade to be had um being uh, there's a trade to be had being long uh tenure treasury uh, tenure treasuries and basically expecting yields to go down as well so Sri, what you said at the beginning, I found extremely interesting as a way to propose the copper to gold ratio, which is not something very new, I would say, as a ratio, as an indicator. But many people present it as, well, copper is a bellwether for industrial activity or economic activity in general. Gold uh, is worth a safe haven or an inflation hedge, etc. So it, it's a defensive um, exactly. metal, precious metal, let's say. So looking at the ratio will tell you whether the economy is accelerating or decelerating effective and also whether sentiment is becoming more aggressive or less aggressive on the economy. The way you presented it though was much more interesting because you said, okay, so copper is a commodity and it's priced in dollars. Now, what happens to the amount of dollars? What happens to the denominator? So if there are much more dollars circulating in the economy and again, dollars that can be spent, not dollars stuck somewhere in the interbank system, but real dollars that can be spent, then obviously this impacts the price of copper because the denominator is changing, right? And now you say, let's neutralize this effect and put gold because you can't easily print any new spendable gold out of nowhere. And let's see how copper is doing priced in gold. I found that to be a very, very fascinating way to put it. I wanted to move now to um, China because you mentioned China a couple of times, both in a global macro perspective, but also related to copper. And I know that you have some opinions about China, both structurally and speaking. So let's uh, let's have a chat about China. What do you see happening there? So I think the interesting thing about China is so long so from a long term standpoint, they have a lot of um, so so from a long term standpoint, so China has a lot of um, structural issues that just hamper the economy. So the first one that is worth discussing is what's going on with demographics. And so, you know, if you, if you go back, you know, they initially introduced a one child policy and then, and, and then eventually, well, what that led to was a mass, uh, uh, it led to sort of a deficiency in the population. So a deficiency as in the number of people in China. And then, and then, um, the other thing was so interestingly, I believe a couple of weeks ago, there was some research that came out saying that China overstated its population by, about, um, but I think it was uh, it was just under ten percent, which is, which, is, which is quite massive. And so it said that China's yeah. actual population was about one point two eight billion, and now the one point four plus billion that you know that that is you know, that, that people usually that people usually look at or appear, or that those those are the official numbers. But the official numbers are apparently likely not right. Obviously, we would need more kind of we would need more research to confirm that. But what what is interesting is that if you look at how much the average Chinese household or the average Chinese parents spend as a portion of their median income on say the kids' education, it becomes very hard to make an argument as to why we will see more babies being born in China just because it's become incredibly expensive. It's become incredibly expensive to raise to, to raise kids and pay for their education, etc. Just uh, just within the Chinese, uh, just within China. And remember that culturally speaking, just within Asian countries and China in particular, in uh education is is vital it is something that uh it is something that is culturally ingrained it is something that you know every child has to do well at school so it, it is just something it is just something that's just culturally there compared to say the u.s etc and 
Yeah, and when you see and when you see how much you feel, if I remember the number off the top of my head, it was about forty percent uh, of their median income is spent on the child's education. So obviously, if you have two kids, then you spend eighty percent, and you won't have any money left for food or housing or clothing, etc. So this, uh, so that's so that's one of the big issues. So we're starting to see the demographic decline in China. And remember that the right. Remember that back in the seventies and the eighties, China had a lot. Uh, had a lot of young people. We started to see some amount of liberalization with Deng Xiaoping um, coming to power, etc. And eventually in the late 90s and especially in the early 2000s from about 2002 to 2006, we saw massive commodity bull market mass uh, just driven by China. And so, you know, that was now, you know, that was a very powerful time to be, that was a very good time to be long China. China was becoming a very powerful economy. But, you know, those dynamics seem to be reversing. And the second, the second important structural issue that we're seeing is when it comes to the investments versus the, versus the consumption function, we've seen Michael Pettis and Michael Pettis's work highlight with, uh, and, um, highlight this dynamic of how China has focused on investment, corporate investment, et cetera, as the way to boost aggregate demand. So remember that aggregate demand has has uh, roughly five factors, or I guess four factors. So you have you have consumer spending, uh, corporate investment, government spending, and then exports minus imports. So what we saw was this I factor, the investment factor, go up, and a lot of it was funded by debt. And debt after a point starts to become unsustainable just because it becomes harder to pay off debt. And then, and then the return that you generate with every additional dollar of debt that you borrow may actually be lower than the cost at which, uh, uh, the, the, the cost of the, the cost of the debt itself. And so what Michael Pettis has argued is that we need to see fundamentally a shift from, uh, for a shift from this investment function to this, uh, to the consumption function. And we need to see that we, we need to eventually start seeing these debt levels come down because it is just unsustainable to keep borrowing money and, and spending it. And, uh, and a lot of the spending tends to be, uh, or at least some amount of the spending tends to be wasteful. So, you know, we've seen the advent of stuff like ghost cities, et cetera, just within China. Um, so, and then the third, and then the third and very important thing that we've started to see over the last few years is, um, uh, is, is the is the strong grip of the Chinese Communist Party on regulation? So we started to see we started to see the tech crackdowns. We after that, um, it, it just becomes very hard to you know have the promise of property rights as an investor in order for capital to flow to China, and and so I think you know fundamentally speaking, uh, China China is just very unattractive as a country to put uh, to put any uh, any amount of money in. Yeah, as Ria, I had similar uh, considerations when looking at the demographics in China. I think if you look at the labor force, the labor force since the um, 80s to 2020 doubled. Again, doubled. It's ridiculous. It's a huge pace of growth. But now if you look at the fact that it takes 20 years, 0.7 to make it 20 years old, uh, and you look forward to the next two to three to four decades, you actually see this likely to reverse back. And as the labor force shrinks, it's very difficult to engineer growth. If not, as you said, 
via debt and leveraging. But obviously, if you look at private sector debt in China, we are at levels that are incredibly high. They're as high as Japan uh, during the real estate bubble or many other jurisdictions when they started having some sort of bubble or problems. And we are seeing already some, some big actually real estate deleveraging in China with some big defaults uh, uh, across developers. Don't forget China is a $55 trillion real estate market. It's the biggest real estate market in the world. Talking about real estate, I just wanted to move to the last point of this interview because you live in Canada and talking about places with high private sector debt and a very large and buoyant real estate market, it's time we talk about Canada for a second. So what's going on there? So what is interesting about Canada is there's a lot of structural supply issues when it comes to the housing market in Canada. And so you know, it's obviously, you know, it's obviously easy to start blaming, you know, the central bank. Central banks kept rates too low over the last 10 years. And that's why we're seeing this. Or, um, you know, it's, it's the easy money and the money printing. And so that's why. So, but, you know, I would firmly disagree. And so, I mean, obviously mortgage rates have had some impact on the demand of, ha- demand for housing. But I would argue that a large portion of the reasons behind why housing is so expensive in Canada is, Related to is really is related to uh, supply issues. So, if you look at Toronto or Vancouver, and if you look at the suburbs of Toronto or Vancouver, the way these suburbs are constructed is so they have a lot of single family housing. So they have a lot of houses as opposed to apartment buildings, etc. So when you have these, so when you have these houses, what ends up happening is so on a plot of land where you could say build an apartment, you instead have ten single family homes. And so an apartment, let's say, you know, a 10, a 15 story apartment with say 10, you have with 10 units on each floor. So that would have 150 units of housing in total, just on the same plot of land as, as those 10 houses. So if you have 10 single family homes, imagine we just get rid of those homes and we build an apartment. And so the apartment can now house more people compared to those 10 single family homes, uh, homes and it's exponentially more people. It's 15 times as many. Um, in a, in a 15 story, 10 unit per story apartment, which are very, which are very, which are very common in terms of, uh, the apartments in Canada, even though the, the, even though the most common, um, mode of housing is the single family home. And so, uh, and so what is interesting is that the government has effectively banned the construction of apartments by introducing what are called zoning laws. And so what they do is they split up the city, uh, they split up the city or the suburbs into zones. And so they say that within this zone, or they split up into pieces and say within this piece or within this zone, you can only construct single family housing or within this zone, you can construct apartments. The problem is that a lot of this land is either barren. So it's, you know, it contains forests, trees, et cetera, or it's got single family housing. And so what we're seeing is this structural shortage um, in the supply of housing, which, which could have been fixed simply by introducing uh, new apartments by by just constructing new apartments um, and drastically boosting the housing supply. The other the, the other dynamic that becomes a problem here is that the intent uh, the incentive structure of voters is misaligned. So remember that the average voter is is usually older. So it's not teens like me. It's people who are older and they already own a house. And so you know for and so if we started constructing apartments. What ends up happening is their housing, by their the value of their house starts to go down. So the so the price of their house or their biggest asset starts to decline, and 
that and and you know they don't want that because you know their 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 biggest asset is is their house you know to one point two or one point five million you know why would they want that to come down to say eight hundred thousand or four hundred thousand just so you know poor kids like me are able to buy a house you know they they just don't want that and so uh, and so you know the other interesting thing was in Vancouver it is it is easier to get a pope elected to the head of the Catholic Church than it is to get an apartment building approved in Vancouver. And so, and so what, so what it just causes is it just causes this massive, uh, there's this massive difference between, um, supply and demand. And so, you know, we're starting to see, you know, Canada requires a lot of immigration. We're starting to see immigration, but, and then, and then to some extent, uh, the real estate prices are boosted by some amount of Chinese, money laundering and and there's evidence for that and the problem is the is that the chinese um or at least a bunch of the chinese who are typically affiliated with the government they have so much money they just come to canada buy a bunch of property it just stays empty because no one lives there it's just a place for them to park their cash and so uh and so and so that is another leading factor to why um and to to why canadian real estate prices are so high but the biggest biggest problem is uh, is is the supply restrictions and just and just in general, the fact that we just don't have enough houses and government simply will not allow the construction of more houses. So Sri, instead of hearing a rant about central banks pushing up house prices, a very interesting perspective on the fact that both regulation and other incentive schemes, extremely interesting, uh, the voter story. Indeed, if your balance sheet asset side is composed 80% by house prices, what's your incentive scheme to vote for any regulation or any party that's going to push regulation against that? Exactly. So one uh, silver lining maybe is that hopefully the demographics of voters in Canada and elsewhere is going to change. Not hopefully, but it's a fact. Mm-hmm. It's going to change over the next eight to 12 years. Still some time to, to wait until more friendly regulation for uh, house supply comes online. We should get there. Sri, the last uh, thing I want to ask you in this interview is I personally am utterly impressed by your ability to talk about global macro at the young age you are. Some of this ability has been developed due to your podcast, which is called Market Champions. And I I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, But I I would like you to present for a second. What do you do in this podcast for how long has been going on and how does it work? Absolutely. So I started the podcast back in January 2019. I think it was 14 back then. Um, and so the podcast is dedicated to interviewing practically the best minds, the smartest people when it comes to economics, uh, markets and finance. And, you know, Alf, you know, you've been a guest in the podcast, I think a couple of times or so. And, and so, you know, we move, and so a lot of the discussions revolve around macro revolves around discussions like interest rates you know what's going to happen to the dollar you know what's going to happen uh well you know what's what's going to happen within the economy you know are we going to see or are we going to get a recession and then what's going to happen to interest rate what is the fed doing right now etc and it's it's it is a general finance podcast a lot of the content is definitely based around macro but again you know i've had people who are who are quants and i've had individual equity people you know long short equity people i've had a couple of venture capitalists Etc. And so, the, and so that's what it's dedicated to. So, you know, you can find that by just Googling market champions, or you can go on to a podcasting platform of your choice. So you can say, take Apple podcasts, you could take Spotify or Google podcasts or whatever, you know, Stitcher, whatever platform you prefer. And then just search up market champions and you should be able to find my podcast, find my podcast there. And so it's also on YouTube. 
Um, the, the, the funny thing about YouTube is it's, it's a lot harder compared to, compared to the audio medium, just because, so in YouTube, on YouTube, if you make clickbaity content, you know, that goes a lot, that, that, that goes very viral. You know, if you, if you're like, you know, is the market, you know, are we going to see the housing market crash? And then with like a, ah, like a, like a funny face. And then it's just, it, it, you know, those are, those are the videos that end up going viral. And so it becomes, so it becomes, so, so YouTube has that interesting dynamic to it, but, but, but yeah. So if you want to go find my podcast, you know, that's the best way to do it. Guys. And uh, honestly, it's one of the few podcasts I listen to every week. It's a, a good content very well based, very informative macro podcast. It's called the market champions. Go and visit it. Zri, thanks for being here with us on Blockworks. By the way, guys, uh, talking about channels, if you want to hear more of, the, of these interviews, just subscribe to the Blockworks macro YouTube channel. So you get a ping every time there is a new video on. Zri, thanks for being here and uh, we'll talk soon again. Thanks for having me off. It was awesome to do this.